My guest today is regular contributor Tom Cassidy, and Tom is VP of with Outreach. And I invited Tom on because he has a personal project that I felt I'd like to share with everybody. And his project is called Start With The End In Mind. So Tom, very welcome to the podcast. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about what you had in mind with starting with the end in mind. And it's interesting. You're, you've just done with uh, with my personal project what uh, what my vicar once said I shouldn't do when I was doing my marriage uh, my marriage things. What is it uh, uh, on marriage? It's till death us do part or death do us part, which is the sitcom, and it's you shouldn't get it the wrong way. So my project is end with the start in mind rather than start with the ending one. So the very clever. The best-selling author Stephen Covey came up with "Start with the End in Mind." That's where I was. And I flipped it slightly, and the reason is, is I remember whenever doing any kind of sales training or whenever looking, you know, changing a process or having been given some coaching, I always used to think to myself, "This would have been super useful if I wasn't already in the middle of doing most of my deals." You know, you. You went to this training and it's like, I've got 20 deals in flight. How on earth do I apply this to the stuff that I'm suffering with today as opposed to all of the stuff that's coming tomorrow? So end with the start in mind is the whole thought process behind it is uh, the start's already happened. We're already in the middle of it. So can somebody talk to me and help me with things that are going on already? rather than in this perfect world, starting from home, when I'm never at home. That's interesting. What you're saying reminds me of that old story where there's an American tourist in in, in Ireland and he's in the middle of nowhere and he's completely (laughs) lost. And he meets this local guy and he's asking, how do I get to Tralee? And the guy says, well, I wouldn't start from here. Absolutely, yes. The, the the inspiration to that title is is actually that story. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So t- tell me then, I, I'm curious how that works, because you're absolutely right. So much of training is perfect world. Here's a playbook for how you should do it. You're saying, OK, but, but I have this right now. What's what's your answer to that? Uh, a multitude of things, which is why it's a personal project. This is um, uh, things get more complicated when you're in the midst of it. I kind of I, I find myself um, you know playing on a lot of phrases like you know practice hard, play easy. Yeah, is uh, you know preparation the seven P's of preparation. Um, you know when you look at uh, you know kind of any of the elite special forces around the world. You know, what, what sets them apart is how they react when things start to go wrong, uh, not when everything's going perfectly. And so, you know, the things that have, uh, that have either stood the test of time with me through my career or, you know, when I've, when I've shared nuggets of, you know, of tactics or, um, or ideas with, you know, folks who work with me or in my network, the ones that have always had the most impact were the ones that worked in the moment, not logically speaking, or in this perfect world. That's interesting, yeah. 
That's, that that re resonates really well with me because I, I remember a few years ago I was doing this. Uh, I got a present of a of a pilot of a flight on a on a Cessna, some small private thing. But I, I was thrilled by it. It was great fun. And first of all, I remember experiencing the illusion of control. <laughs> when the guy says, take the stick, I wasn't taking anything, right? It was The stick seemed to be moving in my hand. But yeah. what was interesting, when we got back down with all the adrenaline rushing, and the guy says, I, 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 I'm kind of thinking, I'd love to do more of this. And I said, what would be involved? And he said, well, he says, typically, or minimum 40 hours to get your private license. But he says, most people take about 60 hours. And I asked him, I said, how long would it be before I could be take off and land on my own? under my own control with a supervisor and he said ah four or five lessons i said that strikes me as kind of strange that i could be doing that within four or five hours but yet you're saying it could be 40 to 60 hours to get the license and he said that's only the beginning he says as soon as you can do that he says what we do is we take you ten thousand feet up in the air and we cut the engine and hand you control mm. And, and that resonated me when you said that, is that element of the, the real work starts when, you, when you're in trouble. Mm. How do I get out of trouble? And, and, and it's about programming your instincts so that you, you, you know what to do, where to go. Yeah. Is that, is that where we're, 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 what we're talking uh, about here? Absolutely. Uh, you know... <laughs> I seem to be coming up with a load of one-liners. You know, Mike Tyson's famous for saying, everybody's a good fighter until they get punched in the face. Um, and, and it is exactly that, which is, take it's taking stuff that works in theory. So I've seen it before where people are inspired by training in a classroom. They go back into the workplace and the moment something goes wrong, they either go back to type or they say, well, that doesn't work here. Uh, and that's not the answer. What it is was they just weren't inspired or, or given the edge cases that help them to see how they can apply that in these typical situations in the real world when the engine cuts out at 10,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah. So let me test that. But I want to play devil's advocate a little bit because I can imagine and we can use maybe music again as an, as, as an analogy that... You could teach somebody to play a sequence of chords that sound like a piece of music. So you could teach them a, a basic melody on a piano. Yeah. That's in the moment. Just If mm. you just play these notes in this sequence with this timing, it will sound like that piece of music. However, that doesn't teach them the discipline of learning to play. Mm. That's a whole other different kettle of fish. And how do, you, how do you square that circle where you're not just almost making them dependent that, look, in this moment, this is exactly what you say or do, and they go, yeah, got to do that, versus, I guess it's the old biblical thing about you teach a man to fish, you feed him, for, you know, you, you give him out of fish, you feed him yeah, one yeah. day, you feed him fish, you feed him for a lifetime. So I, I guess what I'm asking is, by working with somebody in the moment, is that stealing, or maybe that's too strong a word, but is that, is that preventing them from really learning the discipline of learning? No, 
and I'm not trying to suggest that there's a, a shortcut in this process. What I am uh, suggesting is, you know, the, uh, there's, there's 999 books out there which are phenomenally powerful and give you all of the base level knowledge and the practical experience and all the rest of it. The one that's missing is the one that says, and, and here's what to do when it's going wrong, when you're at 10,000 feet and the engines turn off. Yeah. And um, it's, um, it's giving people the tactics to apply that stuff. I remember you spoke to me years ago um, around the kind of Sandler certification side of things where it was like, you know, bronze was, I understood it. Uh, you know, silver was, I know it. And gold was, I live it. And, and the bronze, silver, gold in that requires dedication over a long period of time and you know, lots of iterations and all the rest of it. And for me, there's, um, um, for somebody like me, who's just, you know, was so impactful in my life and all the rest of it, I was gonna follow through on it. And my belief system supported it and, uh, and what have you. There's, there are many folks though, who I feel get stuck at silver uh, and can't bridge the gap because it, it, it you know, something falls over at a certain stage and they weren't given the you know the tactics to be able to um or, or the ideas to be able to bridge the chasm between yeah i know it i use it i, I kind of understand it but i'm not living it mm. i guess what we're talking about at the moment are how to optimize interventions to enable growth that's absolutely yeah that's a great way of putting it yeah so put, putting that to one side for a moment i think we could come back to it uh, because it's, 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 it's downstream a little bit. Let's come back upstream and talk about, well, where, do the, where are those interventions required? Maybe we could start and talk a little bit about the state of play of sales leadership today, how it's different, where the requirements for those interventions are, and then we can look later on about how best to implement them. So big picture, maybe you could share with me a little bit about how you see the state of play, kind of like state of union speech about sales leadership, how it's different today, and what are the current challenges that you see that are not going away anytime soon and require some level of intervention? Mm. Uh, and actually, some of this is, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a punt on foresight as well, which is, um, you know, um, again, to use a, a, a sporting analogy, um, is if I was if I was coaching for the way people play today, by next season I'd be irrelevant. Yeah, and uh, so part of what I'm thinking about is actually trying to align some of this thought process to where I believe sales is going in this accelerated era of change. So, you know, br brief history of time for me is you know I've been selling for twenty odd years. You know, when I started. Uh, you were given a territory and other than some inbound interest, you were expected to be able to divide that territory up and work out when to spare, where to spend your time, effort, resource and money. And uh, what that ultimately meant was most successful salespeople identified very quickly in their territory of accounts where the money was and ignored everybody else. And so, you know, five out of 200 accounts got serviced phenomenally well um, and you know the company thought that was uber successful 
and you know with the advent of this kind of you know the SDR world where people were building pipeline and uh, and then you had people closing where that meant what you tended to get more coverage of those 200 accounts and and guess what uh, oftentimes I've found that the, the five accounts that I chose at the beginning on the face of it looked like they were worth money but actually there was another five that were found by the SDRs that were way more fruitful uh, and delivered way much more revenue and then you ended up selling to 20 or 30 so guess what we've now increased four or five fold the number of accounts that we're covering lots more people know about us the, the PR of you know one-to-one -one sales engagement was was tracking forward now I find myself um, at the end of this past year or so of intense change uh, having had a bit of a light bulb moment which is if you subscribe to the notion that people buy emotionally and justify rationally, which I think you do, mm -hmm. um, it always used to be the case that the, the emotional purchase, because it was all done, you know, a lot of it was done face to face and therefore was dragged out over weeks because you had to find meeting rooms and find time to travel somewhere and so on and so forth, that oftentimes you had people saying, oh, well, we have a you know, six to nine month sales cycle or it's one to two years. Really, it's a 365-day swing on your sales cycle. You know, it's one to two years, which meant it was two years. And then the rational process was always something like somewhere between six and 12 weeks. Yeah, which would include, you know, uh, legal or uh, you know maybe a small proof of concept. Uh, it would include technical validation. It might include detailed specifications if it's outside of technology. But the, you know, from the, I want it, to how do I buy it? And what specifically do I need? Now, what I'm seeing and what excites me is a huge contraction in the emotional purchase. People over the last year have got used to having to make decisions. So the emotional decisions are happening a lot quicker. And because of, you know, online media like this, uh, meetings are happening a lot quicker. You know, it's two days between a meeting rather than two weeks weeks between a meeting. And so the focus is now suddenly uh, turned to this static piece of the, pro the rational process, which is now not changed at all, but in people's minds, they're thinking, huh, uh, this is taking way too long. Uh, and what do we need to do to address it? And they're starting to, I, I can see people thinking that actually the emotional selling, that's easy. It's not. Um, it's, it's as challenging as it always was, it's just shorter. And there's this complexity on the, on the rational side of it. And so something I see happening is, whereas before when this whole thing was as a whole, the barrier for me to get into selling was, how many years of experience do you have? Do you have a, uh, you know, an address book of contacts that you can go after? Do you know the, the industry, the vertical, and so on and so forth? And I can see, uh, the skills required for emotional selling now is is got nothing to do with all of it. It's it's empathy. It's 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 being inquisitive. It's being a storyteller. Um, uh, it's asking great questions. It's doing guided discovery. These things don't require any experience. They're eminently coachable skills, and I can see that that side of the process potentially the, the SDRs of today, which are booking meetings, 
uh, and my vision is they actually become the people who get all the way to the emotional purchase done. And then they're gonna hand over to a practitioner who in today's economy would be a project manager or a program manager, uh, a buying facilitator, who will take them through the process of dealing with it. The medical side of things to me is, you know, is, is the emotional side now is going to a really good GP, somebody you trust, who is able to get somebody to be inspired. Of, yeah, do you know what? I need to go and have that operation. I need to get that done. And when I go and see the consultant on that rational side of things, I'm now going into some detail and they're taking me through a process. Uh, and at the end of it, I'm, I'm cured. Yeah. That's, where my, that's where my head's at at the moment. One of the pick up something that I, at least I thought I heard, which was around the, the, the change in skill sets. And, and it seemed to me like that you were downplaying a little bit domain expertise as a requirement. And I wanted to pick up on that because I had an experience last week which made me think about this and I thought it'd be useful to discuss was, and I was working with some Sander colleagues in the US, one of them in a previous life, maybe 10 years ago, he was global head of sales for a Fortune 100 technology company. And he has then spent the last 10 years as a Sander trainer, teaching people how to ask great questions. Now, that's an oversimplification, but essentially mm -hmm. that's it. And we were talking about <clears throat> the requirements in, of, for remote training, which we're all doing a lot more of, obviously, nowadays, in terms of differentiation and looking different. And he liked my setup. He came on and he said, Paulie said, I like, you know, your camera is pretty sharp, your lighting, you know, all of that. Now, he didn't specify why he liked it. I'm doing that. He just said, love your setup. And then he mm -hmm. asked me the killer question. He said, what camera are you using? And I said, I'll tell you the camera, I said, but I wouldn't recommend you get it. Oh, why is that? And I said, I'm using that, I said, because I happen to have it. But I wouldn't recommend it. It's, it's overkill for what you need. And, but what was interesting very quickly was he, when I explained it to him, it was that, it, let me step back a little bit. He was asking me the complete, the wrong question. Yeah. What camera are you using? Camera really doesn't matter. I'm not saying it's not important, but in the overall scheme of things of what he was looking for, he was looking to, Paul, how, did, how can I get my setup to look like yours? That's what mm -hmm. he was really asking me. And he didn't know how to do that. He said, what camera? And of course, that's of all the items that you need to get a look like this, that's the least important. Lighting is first important. How to get up lighting and control lighting. Second is the lens. How do I get that kind of out of focus background? Yeah. And, 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 but my point on this is that his go-to question was what he thought was the answer, was the camera. Because he didn't have that domain expertise about what mm. goes into giving a, a look and mm. setting a mood in terms of lighting and audio, etc. So, so it kind of made me think a little bit about how important domain expertise is in terms of that if you don't have some, you may be asking all the wrong questions, even though you may be taught how to ask great questions. Does that make any sense at all? Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. How do we square that then as 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 a key skill? I mean, has has that changed, or do we still well, need? That? Well, you know, here here could be one of the first you know great tactics, if you will, is um, you know, a lot of people talk about well, you need to ask great questions that uh, that help somebody discover you know, how important it is your product or service is. Now the challenge. Uh, that, that comes about there is oftentimes you'll hear a lot of salespeople say, well, I couldn't sell something I didn't believe in. Oh. Now, I, I would actually advocate that it could be a little bit easier for you to sell something that you don't actually believe in because you'd actually ask the right questions. Let me explain. When, when you believe in something, you tend to ask questions that are navigating the customer to the outcome you're looking for. So let's say I believe that, uh, that uh, you need a Lamborghini sports car. Yeah, I'm going to ask you questions about, you know, do you, uh, you know, um, do you want to go fast? And, uh, you know, how fast is your current car go? And, um, you know, uh, how does it look when it's going down the high street and all the rest of it? Because I'm asking questions that are moving you towards the outcome that I'm hoping for you to go after. Mm. And what's counterintuitive is before you move somebody towards somebody, you, you've got you've to bring them back. You've got to move them away from it first. Moving away from something is where desire comes from. It's like I call it the catapult effect. You've got to, you know, a catapult is useless if you just try and push the thing out the front of the catapult. You've got to pull it back, pull it back, pull it around. And the further you pull it back, and when you let go, when they're ready, and they're like, I just want to go, I just want to go, boom, off they go. Then they fly towards the objective way quicker and way more creatively than you could ever have thought of. This is really yeah. fascinating because, if you don't mind me just interrupting for a second, because I, I remember, I, I've talked about this many times, and I never... Your, your catapult effect is, is a better term. I, I, I always call it creative tension. Mm. And, and anytime I talked about it, whether it was in when you pick up the phone and, and, and call somebody out of the blue and you say, hi, I'm Paul, I'm probably wondering why I'm calling. And people say, oh, I can never say that. And I go, hey, why? Or, or you say, hi, it's Paul Annigan. Yeah. And you leave that silence, just that silence. And they go, oh, yeah, but that's awkward. I say, exactly, that's called tension. And then what mm. happens is one or other person relieves it. Either the mm. prospect says, oh, how can I help you? Or, or, or you say, doesn't sound like my name is familiar. Can I take 30? You know, e either way, yeah. but, 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 but before you relieve it, you have to create the tension. And, and, mm. and I often found people struggle with that because it's uncomfortable. Mm. And what you said there resonated really strongly with me as well about the belief thing. Because you're, and it's something I struggled with, which was, I don't believe sales training is right in many situations. And I often found that as a kind of a personal barrier because I felt maybe I should be selling sales training. That's my job. Hmm. I thought, but, but it's not right. It's not, it's not going to help them. I'm not saying it doesn't help some, but yeah. in many, many situations, it's, it's not right, or it's certainly not right now. There's too many other things that you need to get straight first. Yeah. And I've often felt, I've talked myself out of more tears than anything else, but maybe I wasn't doing that. And, 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 I, and I love the idea of that 
it's if, if I don't if you don't believe in something that that's that's good because somebody's either you're going to convince having listened to them and and asked the right questions you may end up convincing yourself or they may convince you which is the ultimate yeah. is uh, that's reverse the role yeah. reversal the the number one competitor in for every salesperson uh, the glib comp you know thing is oh it's apathy it's not it's everything else they could be doing and mm. you've got to overcome that now uh, you can overcome that by waving the flag of awesomeness of whatever it is that you're pitching and trying to push or um, it's there's a two-step process the first one is you've got to get them to a point at which they decide that doing nothing is the worst possible decision that they could make. Now you've overcome what is, uh, if you look it up, it's called stability preference. It's uh, people enjoy, it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. It's why people stick with, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's loads of sayings that talk to stability preference. Oh. Now, this is the counterintuitive side of things. You've got to be willing to invest the time to get somebody into motion. Now, when they're in motion, that doesn't guarantee that they're going to work with you. It just guarantees they're going to do something about it. Mm. Now, uh, interesting when we're doing, you know, looking at competitive analysis, you know, we, our previous company I worked at, we're like, oh, we lose 15% of our deals to XYZ competitor and we will spend cycles, months and weeks trying to halve that. But the 80% of deals that are lost to apathy, we don't bother looking at. And I'm saying, so that's an element that says, right, get somebody in motion. When they're in motion, it's, you know, that's what, there's no, no original thought here. People process technology. That's what they'll look at when they're in motion. Do I hire some people, fire some people? Do I change some people around? Do I look at a process, introduce a new one, remove one? Do you say, or do I buy some technology or buy some expertise that allows me to address it? You know, so it's still variable in terms of what they're going to do, but at least they're in motion. Mm. Now the super savvy seller inserts himself into that decision. And even if they don't end up buying your product or service, if you've added value, provided guidance, given a referral, uh, introduce somebody else into into that decision that adds value to them. How likely are they next time to come back to you? We know they're very likely, but what you don't realize is they're actually oftentimes likely to come to you when they're still or, or the friction required to get them in motion the second time around is less because you got them moving last time and they felt comfortable with it. You know, the person that pushes you off the bungee jumping platform the first time, it's quite a big shove is required because I was resistant to being in motion. I then, you know, have a whale of a time bouncing up and down on the end of this string. When I go up on the platform again, if it's the same person, how hard do they have to push me second time? Not really that hard because they've proven to me that when they put me into motion, although it was really frightening, it's actually not that bad. And, and it's getting involved earlier on in that conversation. So it's, it's almost like they trick you the first time. Count from five backwards, five, four, push. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's working out. What are, what, are, what are the things that have somebody make that decision? Yeah. And um, 
you know, that's, that's normally helping them to understand what is wrong with their current situation. Now, you know, there are other sales methodologies out there that will say to you, well, you just need to tell them what's wrong. And I'm like, ah, that's, that's, that's towards just spelt as an anagram for me. It's just towards and <laughs> done the other way around. I need to be clever and work out what's an anagram of towards, which is, you know, just push them in the direction we want them to go in. It's not, it's, 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 it's being willing and, and genuinely inquisitive, not just having great questions, actually being genuinely inquisitive to help them find out whether this is important and, and yeah, pull the catabolic, move them away, help them get, give them permission to be uncomfortable with how they're currently doing it. Okay. So what I'm hearing is one is be genuinely curious and inquisitive. Well, the inquisitive comes from the curiosity. Uh, but there's something else as well, which is uh, an innate, well, maybe it's not innate, but certainly an understanding of human dynamics. In other words, that the more I try to convince somebody, the less likely I'm, I'm working against myself as an example. And that's something I think people... I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you here. Uh, a, a, a lot of what we talk about will ultimately come back to sports and probably golf because selling, <laughs> sales is like golf. Um, we always try and uh, you know alter the outcome. But the fact is, the moment the club hits the ball, you know, it, it's, you're in the lap of the gods as to where this thing ends up. And I just found myself thinking there's that, that outcome dependency again, a, a common theme from this, this small chat, which is, you know, uh, I'm thinking to myself, I want to be genuinely inquisitive and uh, I'm going I'm to help them discover, you know, where it goes. And that's like the golfer standing above the ball that's saying, uh, I mustn't, I mustn't put it in the lake. I mustn't slice it right. I mustn't, whatever I do, I have to, can't go down the right, you know, it's a, and sure enough, they hit the ball and it goes down the right. Mm. The, the, so, there's a great Sandler phrase that says, I'm financially independent and I don't need your business. It's a frame of mind in terms of when you're going into a sales opportunity. Um, that's a little bit intangible to me. What it, it, if you really focus it down into those questions is when I go into a meeting, if I've trusted my process before I've gone into the meeting, uh, you know, the customer is in my ICP. They have the right technology. I'm speaking to the right persona. Uh, you know, they've got the right level of investment. You know, the process of preparation is there. Yeah, it's a bit like with a golf shop. I've stood, I've, I've aligned myself, I've got the right club, I've checked the distance, I've done all the bits in between. To then say, um, now because of that, this should happen is the wrong frame of mind. Having done that, you should at that point be willing to invest the time without any agenda to have a great conversation about what's going on in their business. If the process is right, the outcome, uh, more often than not, without even trying to, as long as you just relax into the process and you enjoy the moment, you just take everything in, will, will come about. And that's, yeah. that, that to me ticks the box of I'm financially independent, I don't need your business, because I've, I've, I've picked that client and I've worked that situation, I've put myself in the room and I've said, right, I'm gonna invest this half an hour and I don't care what happens during the half hour other than that I'm in the moment, mm. other than that I've learned something. 
uh, and maybe as an extended objective, I may have helped them learn something as well, mm. or I may have been able to help in a yeah. small way. But there's so much more we need to unpack, and we won't be able to do it today, but in other sessions, when we look at things like, okay, but what you're bringing there is an attitude that not everybody has, and I would, has, I would say from my own experience, is that it's very much in the minority, which is, I'm going to trust the process, I'm going to go into this, and I'm going to take something out of it. A lot of people have a very different attitude. Some, some because they don't feel the need to be there, that's one. Others, it can be because something else in that moment is more important. Their manager has told them that they need to work on some forecast and therefore upmost in their mind is that and it kind of it gets in the way of being in the moment as you describe mm -hmm. it. So there are other things, but again, there, we can get into those on a different day. There's something I wanted to come back to, which is when you talked about the financially independent, I don't need the business. I wanted to break that down because it's important and people often forget that, that part two of it. And, and that's partly because we don't always talk about it. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and we also don't necessarily explain what I'm financially independent, I don't need the business means, because it's a nice soundbite. But really what it is is about detachment. Detachment from a specific outcome, which distracts, as you said, look, I'm going to get that ball over there. And by the way, yeah. if I don't get it, I'm going to be in big trouble, or I'm envisaging what's going to be in the newspapers the next day. It's the old Roberto Baggio in the World Cup final. You know, you yeah. bet your, your house on this guy to bury the ball, but he's thinking about what could go wrong or thinking about the World Cup, it's fine, you know, the, the, the trophy itself. Whatever it is, he's attached to something else. And that's part A. But part B is what we forget is what you said is, it's not about detaching. It's about attachment, actually. But it's about attachment to the right thing. It's about attachment to the process. So that yeah. I know that I'm going to attach myself to being in the moment, for example. Uh, I'm going to attach to myself to doing the best job possible at inquiring, being curious, asking the right questions, telling the right stories, all of those things. Mm. And so it's, it's in, in many respects, it's, but, but in order to do that, you have to detach from something else, which is the, I'm financially independent. So it's only, it's only half the story, I guess, is what I'm saying. And people yeah, are it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, if, uh, you know, my quota for the month is a hundred thousand and this deal is worth a hundred thousand, you know, your attitude to it is different to what if it was worth a thousand, would you, would you still be in this deal? Oh no, definitely not. Right. So why are you still in it then? Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, cause it's, cause it's worth a hundred thousand. It's a, you know, I go back to golf again, briefly, you know, the, the first at my golf club is a massive wide open fairway. Uh, and I'm playing on my own. Let's compare two shots. The, um, the, the, the similar hole is, is the fifth, the par five, which is right over the back of the golf course. Nobody's ever there. Uh, it, the tee is actually hidden from the road and from everywhere. Still need the driver. And I stand there with the driver playing on my own. I'm not playing against anybody. This, this ball ultimately goes, you know, I'll say 300, but it's probably 260 down the middle. Compare that to, it's, it's the identical shot. I walk up onto the first, I'm still playing on my own. I'm not competing with anybody. But the first tee is actually just next door to the clubhouse. And on a Saturday afternoon, there's often 30 or 40 people sat outside. And as soon as you walk up to the tee, somebody goes, all right, here we go. <laughs> um, how, how different is that shot? That, that shot is the $100,000 deal. There's nothing different to it whatsoever. 
and the one over on the fifth is is the thousand dollar deal it's like the mindset that people have and the decisions they make is based on the tee box they're stood on not the shot they're about to play mm. and it's it's giving yourself the permission to move that tee box somewhere else and say right now if i'm on the fifth would i still play the shot and if the answer is yes then then you should play it mm. and not care what the outcome is so much of what you said so far is all a bit about mindset mastery being in control being aware of what self-talk is going on your belief systems of what you believe to be true as well in a given situation isn't what i should i do in this situation i should be thinking about this i should be asking about that i should be inquiring about this uh, you mm. mentioned here you know i want to chat about their business and but but that that you you bring that into the or onto the sales call with you you don't just decide in the moment mm. and therefore I'm wondering how much of what we're doing is all skewed, that we're teaching people tactics. And, and we started out talking about, in the moment, I'm in a deal and I'm stuck and I need some help with this. That's fine. But it's your mindset that got you stuck, led you to be in that situation in the first yeah. place. And now I want a tactic to get myself out of. But then is that just short-termism? Are we just using tactics to get ourselves out of situations that are mindsets? If we don't change, are going to continuously get us back into those situations. Yeah, it's, um, it's that notion of elasticity, isn't it? Which is, uh, you know, you just, uh, the tactic allows me to bend it to my will, but then it just goes back to exactly the way it was. What we're actually looking for is something that bends it far enough that it stays bent. And that, that then becomes the trained process that we go through. So um, is it that what we should be doing is training people to think differently about themselves, about business, about sales, about how people buy, rather than teaching them processes? Because we, we see these as a shortcut. I mean, it was how it was sold to me. Just follow the process and it will lead to a particular outcome. Well, this is this is where I sometimes, you know, to me, to some extent is where experience needs to be pushed to the later part of the sales cycle to that to that the practical, rational side of it. Uh, again, you know, just using sporting and a number of times you hear that, oh, you know, this this new player to them, you know, to the to the game has such abandonment, the recklessness of youth. And they just let the, the, the thing play and it's just, it, it just uh, and they don't care what the outcome is. But, you know, that's not to take away the fact that they've been since, you know, before they could walk. That, you know, they had Steffi Graf was famous. Her parents, you know, were bouncing balls in front of her when she was a baby lying in the crib. Subliminally, just understanding the bouncing patterns of a tennis ball. And then, you know, when she was, you know, her toy was a tennis racket. You know, she, she grew up with this stuff and, you know, as a, as a child, just was given permission to fail. You know, um, uh, Michael Jordan, was it, you know, he's, I forget his quote, you know, I've, I've missed the winning shot 200 and something times. And yet, I'm, you know, the most successful basketball player that's ever played. The fact is, he was just willing to take the shots. He trusted the process. Yeah. That um, when, when you have experience, you know, I. I Again, you know, I, I just remember when I when I haven't been playing golf for a long while, it's, a, it's uh, yeah, I'm not carrying anything onto the course. So I can just relax. I can't remember how badly I played last time. 
So that's not the baggage that's coming with me. Mm. When, with all of this mental overload, that speaks to a situation that says, actually, experience isn't experience. The baggage and everything isn't a critical success factor in the emotional side of the cell. It's actually that, uh, that release, that detachment. That attachment, detachment, whichever way you look around it, which is either attachment to the process, but detachment to the outcome. Uh, and having people who are just you know, willing, coachable, inquisitive in their own skill set and their own, own approach to actually help folks discover that, you know, that actually doing nothing is the worst possible decision they could make. So, let me see if I can boil this down a little bit in terms of my own understanding is what we're saying is that there's a, a number of mindsets, skill sets that we need to attain in order to be more effective. And that's true of anything in life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, even as I say that, it's, it's not about attainment because I don't think the process ever ends. So it's about attainment. And, and that ongoing process of working on negative belief systems, thought processes, like the old Einstein quote that says, no problem was ever solved at the level of thinking that created it. And therefore, yeah. as we become better problem solvers, which is what we do in sales, certainly in, in complex systems, is we got to get better at solving problems, so therefore we got to change our level of thinking. And that doesn't always come from self-reflection. That's part of it, but it also comes from feedback from the outside world and maybe the coach shining a light into our uh, blind spots that we weren't aware of. So there's a number of aspects to that process of going from this, uh, this young, open-minded, uh, confident individual who's playing with abandonment, as you said, yeah. to being consistent at that. And not just that, but also then improving in other situations because once a player becomes famous, the next thing they have to do is be good at giving interviews, which has got nothing to do with football, right? Or those, and, and then they also have to manage their lives because now they're icons for younger people. So there's all yeah. these other things that come with success that you don't always think, think about when you start out. And it's true of somebody starting out as a BDR, the SDR, AE, and now they're at some stage managing people. So there's this yeah. constant evolution and learning process that is a combination of factors. Mindset is hugely important, but there's also the tactics. There's also how do I work this out? How do I problem solve in the moment yeah. versus more strategically? And I think then if we take that as, as, as a given, then what we've got to do is, and, and I think this is what we can focus on as we go over the next few months is, well, how much of that can I hire in? How can I, how can I iron out the inconsistency so that I'm ending up with more of the right material? Because that's the other thing is that not everybody's the right material. Not everybody's going to soak up that. And not everybody even who soaks it up is going to apply it because yeah. there are other fear factors that hold them back. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're hiring people who are those sponges but also have the courage to implement and learn and, and, and have... Uh, that ego attachment that they're not afraid to admit they're wrong and, and look to be a constant learners and so on. So I think that's yeah. one thing that we, I'd love to talk to you about in, a, in another conversation. And then once we're saying we're starting with the right material more often than not, then 
what does that process look like in terms of, well, what, what's training and what's, where's the role of coaching and how's that different to training? And, and, and well, I might be talking I, I, about tools. There's so many things that, 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 are, that are inputting into that, evolu- that, that growth process. And there's, the, there's, there's the augmentation of that as well, which is what excites me about the current era we're in, which is you know, sales a year ago uh, was something that happened uh, remotely, was recorded in a day book, and on a Friday, I basically downloaded over the phone or face-to-face with my manager everything that I'd written in my day book, ideally into the CRM in the morning. And then in the afternoon during my forecast call, I basically filled in the gaps. Mm. But, you know, I was sent away, come back when you've got some fish. You know, go and fish, off you go. Now, uh, the entire conversation, uh, we're getting telemetry-level data collected. Every call is recorded, every email is picked up, every, every conversation. Uh, and so now you have that. One is that means that the savvy coach, the savvy leader, can now uh, has at their disposal way more than just their intuition, their gut and their experience when it comes to helping somebody be the best version of themselves. In addition, um, so does the salesperson as well. They have something. I, you know, I, I did some training uh, a while ago with a, with a very clever individual called Richard Mullander. He's the ex-chief hostage negotiator of the UK. Or is he ex-deputy chief? Anyway, super smart uh, and gets people out of trouble. And when he was talking about listening, he said, uh, well, there's three of us listening on a call. Uh, and uh, we are absolutely done in and tired after 15 minutes. Okay. Obviously, the listening you're doing is very different to the listening we're doing, because I can sit in a meeting for a couple of hours, listening away and thinking, and they listen in seven different languages. So, uh, you know, just from memory, you know, we typically listen to facts and figures, things that are important to us. But uh, are you listening to their emotions? Are you listening to their values? What are their drivers? What are their currencies? Uh, you know, all of these things come across when people are talking to you. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not advocating that, again, start with the end in mind, which suggests, right, you need to go and learn all of those seven different languages. And when you're listening to somebody, I want you to pick up on everything. Are they a family man? You know, what are their, what are their values? How, you know, how do, how do they think about life? Is it about being professional or is it about being wealthy? You know, these are all elements. Now, yeah, start with the end in mind. Has you say, well, I need to learn all of these things. So as soon as I can't pick up on it, I'll give up. It's too difficult. Well, the call's yeah. recorded. So when you have a half hour call with a prospect, are you booking 20 minutes after the call to listen to it again? And when you listen back to it two or three times, maybe at one and a half speed or two times speed when you get good at it. And the second time you listen to it, you say, I'm not listening for facts now. I'm just listening for drivers. And the third time you listen to it is I'm listening for emotions. And the fourth time I'm listening to it, I'm listening for currencies. And then the fifth time I'm trying to bring those things together. And the sixth time I listened to it, the, the one that blew my mind from him is he said, every question somebody asks you is a gift. The thing is, we just remember the last gift we opened, which is normally well, you're twice as expensive as your, as your next nearest competitor. Oh, they're, they're price sensitive. He said, go back and listen to the call. And he said, 
forget everything else. Just write down every question that they asked or tag it as you're going through it. It's when you look at all of the questions in total, you'll find out what they're really about. And the first call I did this on, I looked back at it and the last question, sure enough, was, uh, well, we haven't raised any money for some, some time, so we're really price sensitive. Even with me, with all of my experience, I was like, well, this is going to be, you know, we're going to be up against some, you know, we're going to be up against it because we're the most expensive solution. Uh, the other, I think it was 12 or 13 questions that were in there were about uh, rollout, were about how we de-risk it and all the rest of it. Suddenly realized in my next meeting when I spoke to them, I said, um, typically when doing these projects, how, how do they go in your organization? I, I, I got the sense from the first call when I listened back to it that there's been some false starts or some failure. Oh yeah, we're terrible. Nothing, the number of times we buy stuff and it doesn't go live and actually some people have been you know, kicked out the business as a result. They made a bad investment. So I was thinking to myself, bad investment or they just weren't very good at deploying it. And the gift was those questions. So what I'm saying in kind of the long-winded way is we, we've now got some new things that really clever, smart, top commercial exec salespeople are doing. So they're using them. They've worked out how to leverage them to their benefit. This is ending with the start in mind. That's really interesting. That almost comes as full circle to where we started out when I gave you that anecdote about a colleague asking me about the camera because mm. there's, my filter there was, is, is what, what does he really want? He doesn't want, and, and it was just because I know that if you're not interested in cameras, you're just not interested in them. And I, and I knew that. So therefore, there was part of me going when he asked me what the camera was, it's, it, he had a different question. And really what he wanted was, how do you get that look? Hmm. Which is a completely different question. But uh, I, I, it's the filters that help with that. And I love, your, I love the idea of the seven languages and listening. And, and, and you, you've actually addressed, and I think we should finish up on this point now, I'm just conscious of time, is that it, it addresses a concern that I had, which is marrying the world of technology with bringing that... That, that those filters and, and mm. that perception of the game, if you like. Mm. And I often, I often use the analogy, again, using cameras to say that, you know, the technology in cameras to these days is insane. Just look at your phone. And in terms of metering, processing, exposure, uh, availability, where you can put your, how you can mm. share it, it's just insane. However, what we've lost out on is the art of actually seeing and taking a great photo, a great image that, that creates an emotional reaction in the viewer. And, and that's what it was interesting, actually. I was reading an article uh, during the week, uh, and it was Heidi Klum, famous model. Yeah, yeah. She has said, and I have an example of it here. So this is one of my favorite. I know, by the way, I have cameras with every bit, as you know, well know, every bit of tech in them. And I know you're, you're similar yourself. But one of my favorite cameras is this film camera, this old. And yeah. that has automatic nothing in it. But what it does is it forces you to think about mm. what you're taking. Also, every shot you take costs money. Yeah. So you think more about it because, well, is it worth it even in the first place? But what she said was she noticed a big difference between photographers who had come up in the ranks of being film photographers first versus younger photographers who only know digital. Because she said, the film photographer 
was much more invested in her and the relationship and the expression between two individuals of which the camera captures. The digital-only photographer was constantly looking in the back, looking at exposure, looking at focus, and not as invested. Because those things weren't available and didn't matter to the film photographer, you had to know your craft and, and, and trust that you were capturing it, because you couldn't get to see it till a week later when your pictures came back. And, so it was a completely and, different mindset. And, and, and I often, that, go on, sorry. It's, it's in that moment that uh, I think there's a great analogy that picks up what we're saying here, which is um, there's three types of people. You've got the one who takes the film camera and is invested in uh, the skills uh, and has the foresight and the vision to see what that's going to look like when it's exposed. And, and there's a lot of passion that goes into that. There's a lot of practice. There's a lot of experience. And there's, there's a natural gift as well that goes along with it as well, just in terms of framing and all the rest of it. And then you can go to the second person, which is the other end of the scale, which is basically I'm going to wear on my head like nine GoPro cameras that go in a circle all the way around and press record on all of them. And I'm just going to literally just, and then I've got my digital camera and I'm just going to hold the button down. It's just going to go ka-ching, 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 ka-ching and take thousands of photos and thinks that that's the skill that when they get home, one of 15,000 images that they took is actually pretty good. Right. Mm. And there is no skill and it's, and it's, and, and people recognize that it, it's actually, it, <coughs> it's, it's upsetting because it's not genuine. Right. It, the third person is the one that manages to do both. Mm -hmm. And so they've got the film camera uh, and they recognize that they want to be ready and take the moment. But they've got a GoPro on their chest that's recording at the same time. And they're taking the picture and analyzing it. And they've got that there just in case they miss the moment. They, they miss that thing that they weren't looking for because they were focused over here. And and when that's where technology augments the expert augments the individual and it's that balance that needs to be struck and being yep. at one end of the spectrum is you know was was what you could only do 15 20 years ago being at the other end of the spectrum is actually just uh, i just find it ugly abhorrent and it's just not it's not that's not that's what gives sales a bad name it's what gives yeah. photographers a bad name yeah, it's the it one that sits in the middle is 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 what we're looking for. Yeah. You know the, the the photograph that was was because uh, you 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 can't really do sports with this, or so they would say, no. right? Because it doesn't have the fast action. But the greatest sports photograph of all time, do you know what it was? Go on. As, as voted by by I don't know some somebody voted it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's widely regarded, and it's a photograph of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston, who's on the canvas. And it was interesting because that was taken in a day long before digital. Yeah. But it wasn't about the camera. It was about that moment and the expression. And at yeah. the moment, just that split second in time. And what's also interesting is you look through Muhammad Ali's legs. And uh, I'll, I'll pull up for, on, on the recording. I'll pull up uh, so people can see it. You'll see all of these other photographers on the other side who are just getting pictures of his backside. Mm. And, yeah. and, and, and they're equally skilled. But yeah. the timing and the placement... There's an element of fortune. 
in, in some of this as well, about yeah. being in the right place at the right time. And so there's so much I think we, 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 we can unpack over the coming months in, in all of that in terms of finding the right people, um, how do we develop them, how do we grow them, how do we, how do we increase our chances of being in the right place at the right time mm. more often? Yeah. What are those kind of things that we can do? And marrying the tech as well, because my concern always was that when we focus more on the tech, and again, and you know, your VP with, with outreach, it's a tech company supplying sales tech, is that the danger is we over rely on it and then we lose our natural innate mm. skills to be present, to ask good questions, to tell great stories like a great photographer has to, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's a skill about composition, about patience, about planning, understanding. There's so many other mm. factors and traits that go into it that have got nothing to do with the camera. But when you told that story about how to use the technology so that you can listen back to that call and then process it, not alone are you learning about what went done on the call, you're also training your brain to have those natural innate instincts in a sales call. And I think if we can do that and capture all of those, I think it's gonna be, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the uh, yeah. our, our next call. As am I. Right, I need all to right. jump. Till then, Tom, take care.